Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. And so as we come into this text of scripture, I, um, we, we called uh, the staff together talking this week about the sermon title. We called this title, Jesus the Upside Down Savior, because he turns everything upside down. He comes in and the outcast becomes the missionary, becomes the proclaimer, the the the. The leper is cleansed and announces to the cleanse that uh, those who think they're clean that they, they need cleaning because they have a deep soul leprosy that needs to be changed. This text signals for us a cataclysmic shift in people's expectations and in the movement of God. This is what I want to call, uh, what has been called in culture, the black swan event. You, any of you have read about what a black swan event is? Let me give you a quote from Nassim Talib in his book, The Black Swan. It says, consider a turkey that's fed every day. Every single day, feeding, with firm, uh, feeding will firm up the beli- bird's belief that it is the general rule of life to be fed every day by friendly members of the human race. Looking out for its best interests, as a politician would say. I don't know why he adds that, but um, on the afternoon of the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, something unexpected will happen to the turkey. It will incur a revision of belief. (laughs) These friendly folks are suddenly uh, not who I thought they were to be. That's what's happening in Luke's gospel. There is a sudden revision of belief. The insiders are discovering through Jesus that they may in fact be the outsiders and the outsiders are welcome to the inside. Aren't you glad for that? Because not many of us here, <laughs> right, are the wealthy and the wise and the, and, and the somebodies of this world. He called the lowly and the outside to be his. And so here is in this text of Luke a great shift going on. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy where the Messiah is coming in to redeem his people. But who thought that the people that would be redeemed were not those so-called righteous but the unrighteous? So we get to the end of this chapter at the end of Luke chapter 5 and Jesus will be talking about putting not putting new wine in old wineskins. There is new wine and there is a new wineskin and Jesus has come to make things new. And this is a great hope for sinners. This is a great announcement for us. And I hope this morning that what, I, what will happen for you is what was required in this text. That in your mind the narrative of the gospel becomes the, becomes the narrative of your life. Because we all come in with kind of nagging narratives in our minds that tell us things, right? We grew up in legalism, and so we're told constantly by the voice in the back, we haven't measured up, we're not good enough. 
We've fallen short. We're unworthy. We have voices of disapproval by family and peers and friends. And I was on the phone late last night with someone wrestling through the story of the prodigal son in their family, working through the implications of it. Why? Because the world seems unjust and unfair. And someone who's sought to be righteous seems to be neglected. And here Jesus comes into this world and those who have long been outcast see a glimmer of hope. Isn't that great in this text? The audacity of a, a leper to come to Jesus when he is an outcast and he's considered unclean. The audacious move here, but something in Jesus said come. And I'm hoping this morning as we walk through this that some of you this morning would have the audacity to come to Jesus with whatever the message is in your head that says you cannot come, that you will flee to him and run to him today. Just run to Jesus and let him minister to you as only he can. Not any other voice, but the voice of Jesus, right? And, and that often means we need to silence the voices in our own head. There is something significant happening here in, in uh, theology. Some, the, some theologians, church theology, say that what Jesus is building, they, they draw from, we've been talking about this, they draw from secular read, uh, writing, which says that we all need plausibility structures. And plausibility structures are actual organisms or organizations or environments where the message that we are being told is manifested in the reality of that organism or organization. And so what's happening here is Jesus isn't simply saying, I'm willing to come to save sinners. Jesus is signing sinners up, right? Last time we saw Peter, as, uh, as the nets were brought in, he falls before Jesus and says what? Depart from me. For I am an unclean. I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. And Jesus goes, no. <laughs> and he says to the disciples, today I will make you fishers of men. Why those guys? Because they can feel their sinfulness. They palpably sense their brokenness. And when they go out to a broken world, with that in their hearts and minds, they can tell them with tears in their eyes, he touched me. He came to me. He delivered me. And John's been, he's going to be preaching in a few weeks, and he's been reading, gave me this quote from Joel Green. He says, with scribes and Pharisees responding to Jesus with misapprehension and anger, the choosing of the 12 signals a judgment on Israel's leadership for their lack of insight into those in need. Hence, by inference, Jesus is establishing a new leadership. Isn't that amazing? And what's the new leadership look like? It looks like a group of motley people who are in desperate need of a Savior, and the testimony is, Paul will say this, that we have this treasure in what? Jars of clay, so that the glory and the praise belongs to who? God, and not to us. And that's why I'm a pastor. <laughs> God called me because I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a jar of clay that can only have one story that has glory, and it's the story of Jesus Christ and his triumph over sin and death. That's you, Bruce, right? When you go in there, you have one story, a weak man who knows a wonderful Savior who can change your lives. And so that's what's going on in this text of the Scripture this morning. And I, I really want to pause for a moment and pray 
And here's what I want to ask you, and I want you to be honest with yourself. What is the narrative that you hear in your head? Maybe you heard it this morning. Maybe you heard it while Gabe was leaving. What is the narrative that you hear in your head? It could be, there's kind of two narratives really that you see in this text of scripture. There's the narrative of the unclean who feels like they can't come to God. They're too far gone. They're too leprous. They're too foul. And maybe you're here today and you're just thinking, man, I'm a thousand miles away from God and I can't get home. Is that the narrative you've heard? Or is that the narrative in your head, the narrative of the the religious hypocrite who's really more bothered by the sin of the culture and the world around than the sin in your own heart? You're more apt to take the log out of somebody else's eye. And maybe this morning you're sitting here saying, God, I am so self-righteous. And here's what happens in the text of Scripture. Jesus actually sends the outcast to the priests. And he does his deliverance in the face of the, uh, the Pharisees who are crazy. He does it right there. Why? Because like in the story of the, uh, at the end of the prodigal son, what do we see at the end of the prodigal son? Who is the father talking to? Right, he's talking to the elder brother. And he's saying, come on in. And he, and, he, and he doesn't want to come in because grace is too audacious. Forgiveness seems undeserved. And we just get that, that self-righteous voice. And so I just want to say to you, whatever the voice is, it could be condemnation, it could be, it could be self-condemnation. Whatever that narrative is, this morning hear another narrative that you can be clean through Jesus Christ, and he will set you free. And so there's several things in this section of scripture I want you to see this morning that sets Jesus up before us and gives hope to us that he is building a new team. He is establishing a new mission that is of great hope to sinners in need of a savior. So here's the first thing I want you to notice this morning. Jesus has abilities that the priest do not have. He alone can clean or cleanse your deepest impurity. So we start with the story of what? Of who? A leprous man. Start with the story of a man who is deeply leprous. And listen to what it says in chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man. How, How diseased was he? What's it say there? Full of leprosy. And so this man is coming to Jesus, and you have to sense the degree of his desperation. The leprosy is not a mild case that somebody won't notice. It is a fully advanced disease which was repulsive in the culture and symbolic in Israel of sin. Leprosy represented sin and guilt. In fact, if you go to Luke or sorry, Leviticus chapter 13, there is a long chapter on how you deal with leprosy, how the priest was to diagnose leprosy, whether uh, if it was serious and advanced leprosy, whether somebody had to be isolated in kind of an unlimited period of time or whether they would go these seven-day cycles where he would check it and check it if it was a mild case. But in a case of serious leprosy, there was a process where you had to be removed and isolated, and it was agonizing, and you sensed this. You were isolated completely from the community. You were labeled unclean, and you had to say you were unclean. 
It's like the scarlet letter. Uh, you, you had to label yourself by anyone coming even close to you. You said, I'm clean, I'm, un- I'm unclean, don't come near me, I'm unclean, so that the spread of the leprosy would not be extended into the community. It was, it was the ultimate indignity. Leviticus uh, 13, 45 and 46, this is the command. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover up lip and cry out unclean unclean he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease he is unclean he shall live alone his dwelling shall be outside the camp wow just think about the agony of that we, we are made for community. We're made in the image of the triune God. We are made with a longing to be accepted and approved and, 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 uh, and loved and delighted in, to actually live your life that if any human being came even close to you, you had to say, don't come. Don't come near me. Don't catch this thing. That was your obligation and duty. Michael Wilcock writes, The leper was not just ill, he was outcast. He had not simply lost his health, he had lost his friends, his family, his home, his livelihood. No one would, indeed no one was allowed to associate with him. Isn't that awful? I want you just to think about it for a second. It needs to go into our hearts a little bit. Ask yourself, have you ever even just had a moment where you thought you were so foul, so ashamed, so unclean, that if anyone knew, maybe somebody did know what was going on, you just felt so, so rejected and alienated and unclean in yourself that you, you just could not Even imagine life carrying on. Now, I want you to see in this text of Scripture what happens. Look at verse 13. This is one of the most beautiful texts of Scripture. And Jesus did what? He stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus does what they are not called to do by the law. And immediately what happens? He he says to him, I will. If I should go back and say he fell on his face and he begged and said, Lord, what? If you will, you can make me clean. There's an expression of faith. He comes, Lord, if you will. Here's the great thing about Jesus. Jesus both had the capacity to heal the leper and the willingness to do it. And his willingness is not mere verbal. Oh, yeah, I'll get around to you when I have time. Remember, Jesus is overrun by people wanting him to touch them and heal them. And Jesus hears, sees, takes notice, and puts his hand on the leprous man. And anybody would have said, oh, stay back from Jesus. There's no handshaking at the end of Jesus' ministry today. Don't be near him. And you imagine that that disease would go from Jesus, from the leper to Jesus. Michael Card writes this, Jesus does something that no practicing Jew would ever think of doing. He reaches out and touches the diseased skin. By doing so, he has, of course, rendered himself unclean. Now, isn't that the gospel? 
Because when Jesus goes to the cross, what does he do? He renders himself unclean for us so that he might clean us from our sin and our shame. And so what he continues to say, if you use your imagination, you can picture the uncleanness creeping up Jesus' arm. And yet such is not the case. It's as if the flow has been reversed. Cleanness seems to flow out of Jesus. He touches the unclean and they become clean. He touches the dead and they become alive. It is just one indication that a new world is at hand and death and uncleanness have met their match. Is that good news? They met their match. And here's the glory. Instead of the impurity of the leper becoming the, purity, the impurity of Jesus, Jesus' purity overcomes the impurity. Jesus' cleanness overcomes the uncleanness of the leper. That's what he does for every one of us when he goes to the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in his so that our sin might become, no, let me go back. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that through his righteousness we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that the great exchange? The righteous one has the power to transform the unrighteous. Uh, uh, the un- unrighteous. And so this is, this, is, <laughs> this is what he does. He, he says to him, I will, if you're willing. And Jesus says, I will. Spurgeon says this line, the I will of an emperor may have great power over his dominion, but the I will of Christ drives death and hell before him, conquers disease, removes despair, and floods the world with mercy. The Lord's I will can put away your leprosy of sin and make you whole, perfectly whole. Do you believe that today? I hope you hear that and believe that today any person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You say, Jesus, will you forgive me? Jesus, will you cleanse me? Jesus, will you help me? And the answer is, I will, I will, I will. Do you have that narrative in your head today? Now here's what's interesting. He says, even though Jesus is not following protocol, and he touches him, Jesus sends the, the leper who is now cleansed to the priest. He sends him, go, go to the priest now and do what you said. Why? Because Jesus wants him to go and step in and be in every way. This is what he's doing. He is restoring him into his community. He is restoring him back into life. But he's also sending him on mission. Listen to what's being said here. It says in verse 14, and Jesus charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. And that phrase, for a proof to them, it should be understood as for a testimony to them. And when we hear that, we got a couple things going on. One, he is going to be reintegrated back into community. So he is being restored, he is being cleansed, he's being reintroduced into the, 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 the community of, of God's people, but he's also coming in to make an announcement to the priests that there is someone out there who can do more than just check me and see if I'm clean. There's someone who can change me and make me clean. It is a testimony to the religious leaders that there is somebody greater here. There's somebody powerful here. There is 
the Christ. And so it removed, by going to the priest, it removed the stigma of disease and restored the healed man to the community. It also testified to the priests that Jesus had the power to do and the willingness to do what no other priest could. He could cleanse, he could heal and restore. And the book of Hebrews tells us that all the priests and all their offerings couldn't heal and restore sinners. Listen to what Hebrews 10, uh, 11 says. Every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can do what? Never take away sins. But when Christ had, laid, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time when his enemies should be a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, God cleanses lepers and then says, go tell how you got clean. And that's what we are. Can we be honest? That's what we are. This is actually an echo of a scene in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 7. And I want you to take your Bible and run there with me. Go to the, go to the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 7. And Elisha, Elisha is uh, becoming a pain to the king of Samaria, he want, or the king of Syria. He wants to raid uh, the king of Israel and he wants to conquer. But every time he goes to raid the king of Israel, Elisha's saying, telling it that he's coming. And so um, finally, there's this scene where the king of Syria surrounds the army. And so listen to how it begins in, in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, they've been, and just so you know, they're surrounded. There's a terrible scene in the end of the last chapter where they are so starving that they eat one of their children and there's an argument because they won't eat another child. It's absolutely gory and graphic. It is a horrific uh, cruelty that's being done. And then Elisha, <laughs> the king wants to take Elisha's head off because of the situation. And then listen to what Elisha says in chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, Isaiah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, two sayas of barley for a shekel, at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this be? How is that even possible in the, in the environment that we're in? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And it says in, in verse 3, now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine's in the city and we shall die there. If we sit here, we will die also. <laughs> so they're counting their options. If we go into the city, we're going to die with everybody else. If we stay here, we're going to die. Maybe we should go out to the Syrians because possibly we would get killed by them, but maybe we'll live. That's the only option with a, with a potential uh, salvation for us. And so they said um, in verse 4, if we, if we say, let us enter the city, the famines in the city will die there. If we sit here, we'll die also. So now come, let us go out to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. That's how miserable they were. 
So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Now why? Because the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight, abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was. They fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank. They carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said this to one another, we're not doing right. This is a gospel day. Hear what they're saying? This is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until morning, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's households. What happens to the lepers? The lepers go on mission. The lepers have been delivered, and they go and tell that there is life, that there's deliverance, that God has given salvation. Do you see what's happening here? What's happening in the Gospel of Luke? God is sending out lepers who have been made cleansed, by Jesus to announce that there is salvation in the house of God. We are those lepers. We are those lepers saved by grace. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners? And so, you know, some of us come in and we've got this voice, this narrative in the back of our heads, which tells us over and over again, your sin is is going to ruin you. Your sin is going to overcome you, that there isn't any rescue and deliverance. And the gospel comes along and says, no, Christ has chosen sinners. He's chosen sinners to be his prophets and his priests and his kings in order to make it clear that Christ came to save sinners. That's what's going on here. There's a message to you. If you get the Bible, if you read the gospels at all, this is not for self-righteous know-it-alls. It's for broken, stained sinners. Marianne and I watch... Um, I guess, I don't know what they'd be. They're like Korean Hallmark movies or shows. We watch these Korean shows. They're all uh, on the bottom. You have to read the, the trans translation. She doesn't like it because she likes to multitask. I like it because I never multitask. So <laughs> watching this thing. But one of, the, one of the main characters in the one show that we're watching is Dosan. He's a, code, a computer coder. But um, he, he finds in his life that he regularly gets the benefit of something that happened to him as a teenager. When he was a teenager, he won the Korean National Mathematics Competition. And he got in the news. And so he keeps getting benefits coming to him because people find out he was that guy and he has opportunity. But he struggles and he's, 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 he wrestles. And people think he's actually really compassionate. And he's kind and he doesn't care about money and fame. Because one of the things he did on the day he won the national math competition is he was given a medal and as he had the medal around him for winning it, there was another Korean student whose parents were, was, were haranguing him because he failed. And he took off his 
metal and he walked over and said you can have it I don't want it and put it on his shoulder and his dad was horrified and and then the 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 narrative that began to say is this is a guy who's super compassionate about others he doesn't care about honor he doesn't care about prestige he doesn't care about money but later on as the series unfolds here's the spoiler I'm going to ruin it for you we find out that what actually happened for him is as he was writing the math competition test a window was open and the wind had blown through and and there was one question on the test he couldn't get, and the guy behind him, who was the one who was getting harangued, paper went onto the floor. The teacher quickly picked it up, but not quickly enough that he could, this guy could, not, could see his answer. He saw the answer, wrote it down, won the competition. He felt his whole life that despite everybody's idea that he was compassionate and that he was a good guy, that everything good would turn sour because he never fessed up and honored uh, or, or honored the truth, but he, he claimed that he had actually won it. He was living a lie. And I think that's true for there's a lot of people. People can say all kinds of good things about us, but deep down inside we feel leprous. The narrative of our lives is that there's a stain, there's a sin, there's a guilt, there's a shame there. Not everybody knows it, but I know it, God knows it, and there's no hope for me. And so we live in that kind of chronic depression, trying to carry on, and we do religious things. You can be devoutly religious, trying to compensate for deep leprosy. My dear friends, here's the answer. You don't have to. Just come to Jesus. Jesus has the power to cleanse sinners through his blood. Isn't that good news? You don't have to fix yourself. We have a Savior who will give you favor by the grace of God because he has come to save sinners. That's the great message here. Jesus can do what the priest can never do. The priest can only say you're clean or not clean by looking at you on the external. Jesus can make you clean. He can tra transform you. And the second thing I want you to see in this text of scriptures, not only does Jesus have the ability and the will to make the, the sinner or the leper clean. Jesus has access that the priests don't have. He has direct access to the Father without the mediation of the priesthood. Now, here, here's what's interesting. All of the priesthood is built around the fact that they have limited access to God, right? Remember, they can only go to God in the one day a year into the Holy of Holies, and there was always limited access. You can't come to God whenever you want to. You can't come willy-nilly to God whenever you want to. There is limited access to God as a priest. But in Luke's gospel, a couple of times, and regularly, prayer means a great deal to Luke. Luke keeps coming back to pointing us to prayer. And in this text of Scripture, we have this uh, sentence. Look at, down at verse 15. It says, now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmity. So there's all kinds of people pressing in on Jesus, all kinds of people. If he can heal a leper, he can heal me. The crowds are going. But Jesus does not set his priorities out of the pressures for physical healing. He has a greater mission and he has a greater authority. So look what it says in the next verse but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And that's in the continuous tense, both withdraw and pray, which means this was the regular discipline of Jesus. Jesus would regularly withdraw 
regularly pray to the Father. And, and this is the great news for us. Jesus, because he had no sin, had access to our Heavenly Father. And he would go in and seek the Father. And, and Luke will do this repeatedly in this text, that as Jesus is calling disciples, as Jesus is healing the unclean, as Jesus is fulfilling his ministry, we can see that he's getting his marching orders, not by the demands or the needs of men, but by his heavenly Father. That's what's happening here. He's getting his marching orders from his heavenly Father. Go to uh, Luke chapter 6 down to verse 12. As Jesus is choosing and calling and, and ministering um, uh, to his disciples to set up his mission, he always does it out of prayer with the Father. In these days... Luke 6 says, he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued to pray to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he made apostles. And then Luke lists the apostles there. What you and I need to see here then in this text of scripture is that Jesus, as he calls sinners and lepers, and these fishermen who are unclean to be his disciples, he is not kind of, you know, some people have this guy, Jesus is the good guy, God is the bad guy. You know, Jesus is kind of persuading the Father somehow to ease up on us. We have kind of, this is what I was on the phone last night with, uh, talking about, we, we have these ideas because of our experience on an earthly plane that our heavenly Father is some, somehow fallen like our earthly fathers. And so we read in the Old Testament somehow that the message of the Old Testament is that there's a grumpy father up in heaven who's somehow to be appeased by Jesus. What we see in this text of Scripture is that Jesus is aligning himself with the will of the Father. When Jesus goes and picks Simon Peter, when Jesus goes and calls the twelves, when Jesus goes out and forgives sinners, uh, lepers, and the lame, when he goes to do that, he's doing it in response and in conjunction and in agreement with the Heavenly Father. This is, you know, the end of the priestly system taking place, but it's because there's one great high priest who's come, and he has come to do the will of his Father. His meat is to do the will of his Father. The Father has sent him into the world to save sinners. And I think if you read the Bible that way, you read all the way through. Is God holy? We sing holy, holy, holy. Is God holy? Yes. Does God hate sin? Yes. Does he hate my sin? You guys were really quick. Yes, he does. He hates my sin. He hates our sin. He hates all sin. But that's not the end of the story. You have the priests and the religious leaders have this idea. You are tainted. You are stained. God's obviously against you as a leper. That's, it's manifestly obvious you're a deep sinner. And Jesus comes along. Yes, God is holy and he hates sin. But God is a kind and a merciful father towards the broken and the needy. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'm sending that message out he sent his son god so what loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life thank you that's my father that's our father 
There's not this prayer life where Jesus is negotiating with the Father. Father, can you just at least forgive a few of them? That prayer. This, this intercessory thing that we see Jesus doing, I got good news for you. He's doing right now. He went to the cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead, not so he could be finally wiping his hands of the burden of our brokenness and sin. Jesus, right now, is at the right hand of the Father, who is in agreement, who has seated his son in that place, and their agreement, they are still saving sinners from the 1040 window and from Victoria, Minnesota. And you need to hear that voice today. Because you may have a view of God which says the Father doesn't want me, doesn't love me. My dear friends, it was the Father who loved the world that he gave his only son. I hope you hear that, believe that, and run to Jesus. Dane Ortland talks about Christ's intercession. He says, Christ's intercession reflects how profoundly personal our rescue is. If we knew about Christ's death and resurrection, but not his intercession, we would be tempted to view our salvation in overly formulaic terms. This is where we all sing to one another, Jesus loves me, this I know. Then we look at our calendar, we go out and do Christmas, we keep ourselves busy. It's not some religious formula. It's a real God, a real Father, a real Trinity who's saving real people. We need to hear that today. It would feel more mechanical than is true to, Christ, to who Christ really is. His interceding for us reflects his heart, the same heart that carried him through life down into death on behalf of his people is the heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with, reminding and prevailing upon his Father to always welcome us. And what I would say is when Jesus pleads with the Father, the Father is pleased with the Son. Aren't you glad for that? When Jesus is pleading, it's not a reluctant God. It is a God who is pleased. So if, he's, if you think, how am I going to ever live for him? How am I ever going to turn it around? How am I ever going to serve God? The answer is not you. The answer is he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never come down off the throne. He will intercede. He has forever a great high priest. Praise God. Praise God. You can have that assurance today. You know what? You need to understand that the Father delights if you call on him in a day of trouble. Psalm 116, I just came across it this week. I wasn't, I wasn't reading it with regard to the, the message, but when I hit it, I thought, man, thank you, Lord. I, I feel like the Lord kind of pitches me sermon verses. You know, he pitched me this one. This is the psalmist talking about God's salvation. He says, what shall I lender, render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? He said, I will lift up the, call, the cup of salvation and do what? Call on the name of the Lord. Would you call on the name of the Lord today? That's what he's calling you to do. The Father delights to deliver. Finally, let's just quickly and briefly go over the last miracle. The last miracle is who? It's a man who is lame, and Jesus does something audacious again. 
Uh, we have this scene where, where Jesus comes. And don't you love the friends? Aren't, isn't this a beautiful picture of friendship? There's a lame man. The crowds are so great around Jesus that this lame man wants to be healed. And he comes to Jesus in order to, he wants to come to Jesus in order to be healed, but he can't get to Jesus. And it's likely some of the people suggest that he's in Peter's house again. We're not sure exactly where he is, but that he's in this house. These determined friends come to Jesus. And they open up the tiles on the roof and they lower them down. You know, and I've heard good sermons, moralistic sermons, that say this is what friendship is like and this is what prayer looks like. Some of that's all true, but this is not about the friends. This is, it is a declaration of their faith, but this is a story about Jesus. Because when they lower this lame man down before Jesus, Jesus says something. What does he say? It's controversial, verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your what? Sins are forgiven. He, he goes, out of the compassion of Jesus' heart, he goes after the primary need of the man's life. More than being healed of being lame, he needs to be healed of his spiritual lameness. And he is paralyzed but Jesus is freeing him in his soul. And what we're going to see is there is physical paralysis and there is spiritual paralysis. And in this text of Scripture, the people who are paralyzed are who? The religious leaders. The religious leaders are paralyzed because immediately when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what do they say? Who can forgive sins but God? They're, call, they're calling Jesus a blasphemous heretic worthy of death. This is what they bring against them. Who would dare say such a thing? And then Jesus responds very clearly. It says, but that you may know, verse 24, that the Son of Man, listen to the language, Son of Man is revealing that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one who would come to deliver. He's making audacious claims, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, went home doing what? Glorifying God, praising God. By offering forgiveness, Jesus is claiming rightly that he is God. Only God can do this. This is Christmas. God is with us. God is present. Jesus has the right as the Son of God. He has the right to do it not simply because of his identity, but because he anticipates the ministry of going to the cross. He has come that he might die. He has come that he might set free. He has come to forgive sinners. And he can say, your sins are forgiven. That's right out of a conversation with his father up in the mountains in an isolated place praying. He comes down and he announces forgiveness of sins. That's what I'm here to do, he says. That's what I've come to set free. He calls himself the Son of Man, pointing that he is clearly the messianic promise of the Old Testament. And by healing the man, he is declaring both that the man's sins are forgiven and that Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. Now, the man never asked for forgiveness. And Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because of who he is and because of what he would do. 
C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, now unless the speaker is God, this is really preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against him. You tread on my toe, I can forgive you. You steal my money, I can forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announces that he forgave you for treading on another man's toes and stealing another man's money? Asinine fatuity is the kind, kindest description we can give his conduct, yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. This makes sense if he was really the God, what he was, he really was the God whose laws are broken. Jesus is God. And when Jesus speaks to the lame man, and says your sins are forgiven, it's because he and he alone has the right to forgive sins. It, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It only matters what Jesus says. It doesn't matter what you have done. It matters what he has done on your behalf. Isn't that good news? And I want you to hear this today really loud. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This day, your sins can be as white as snow. <laughs> Though they are scarlet, you may be as white as snow. This day, that's the narrative you're meant to hear out of this. And not only that, you are to go out of this place and say, I met a man who saw my sin and set me free. That's what you have as an offer for you in Jesus Christ. Can I ask you again, what's the narrative? What's the narrative you've been hearing today? You need to hear that if you have confessed your sins, your sins are forgiven the father is for you the son is with you and he has called you to go and announce to guilty sinners i love this because god does not want a bunch of self-righteous religious people going around pointing the fingers at everybody else and saying here is your problem what we are going to do is be proof that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners let me give you one last exhortation from chuck spurgeon Oh, my dear hearers, do not be theoretical believers. You believe in sin, believe also in its pardon. Let the one be as much truth as the other. You believe in the punishment of sin. In the case of the impenitent, be equally sure of the pardon of sin to believers. You believe in the guilt of your own personal sin. Believe also in the power of Jesus at this moment to blot out all your transgressions. And lo, they shall vanish as a cloud which is driven before the wind. Forgiveness in Christ Jesus accepted by faith is to be enjoyed now and with it perfect rest and perfect peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, on whom God's favor rests. Isn't that the message of Christmas? Nobody needs to leave here today without that being the chief story of their lives. Jesus Christ has the power, the authority to set you free. Leave your sins, folks. Leaving them at the feet of Jesus. Come to him and accept him. Accept the free offer of the gospel today. There is no reason why this can't be, if it's the hardest Christmas in many ways, may it be the sweetest Christmas you've ever had. Bruce, aren't you glad? You get to go to the 1040 window and you get to tell people feeling the oppression and guilt and condemnation that someone bore it all, took it all, and set them free. Let's pray together.
Oh God, you have come to turn it upside down. You have, you have cleansed lepers so that we might announce to those who are clean that apart from Jesus, they're leprous. You have sent out the lame and healed us, those of us who were paralyzed in our sin, broken by our sin, unable to respond. You have given us forgiveness and given us joy so that we can go out glorifying Jesus so that those who are paralyzed, either by their sin or by their righteousness, might hear if you come to Jesus. He'll forgive you of your spiritual pride and he'll forgive you of your absolute depravity. He's done it for me. He can do it for you. So let us hear the voice of Jesus today, we ask. Thank you, dear God, that there is great, great mercy with your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.